facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. A terrific Tuesday to you. It's the 2nd of May already, 2023. The weather outside, at least where I am, is, I think it's still March, but at any rate, so good to have you with me. 888 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. That's the toll-free line to talk to me. And you can also email the program. The address is kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. We also have a show account at Kale Clark Show. And if you follow us on Twitter, if you follow Relevant Radio on Twitter, you saw the incredible graphic uh, that was made by the great John Hanready for today's program, which is called Soul Survivor. And I titled it that because my wife Trish emailed me an incredible article, which I, I just had to share with you because I think there's a lot of spiritual lessons in this for us. It's about the only survivor of a plane crash, which happened 30 years ago. Uh, the plane crash in the jungles of Vietnam, and this woman who survived shares what she learned during eight days completely alone in the jungle before she was rescued. It's amazing. Her name is Annette Herfkins, and she was taking this flight. She, she worked in the financial industry. She was, in fact, a, a trader. Uh, she traded stocks, bonds, and she was engaged to this guy named Willem Vanderpass, and they were both uh, of Dutch background. And they were, they were dating for a long time, and they worked in different countries. He was a banker. Willem Vanderpass was a, was a banker, and, and Annette Herfkins was a trader, as I said. And so he said, look, we're, we're, we're going to take a little break. We're going to take a trip. And so he had booked them on a flight from Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam to somewhere on the Vietnamese coast. I guess it was kind of a resort or something like that. And it was a tiny, tiny plane. This is back in, by the way, 1992. Very small plane, could only fit 25 passengers and six crew members. And Annette Herfkins was kind of a claustrophobic person by nature. And she's like, I don't want to get on this plane, man. This, this, this is creeping me out. It's too small. I don't like this. He's like, don't worry. It's only a 20-minute flight. It's not a big deal. It was actually wasn't a 20-minute flight. He was kind of fibbing to her to get her to get on the plane. It was longer than that. But it never made its destination. 40 minutes into the flight, the plane just whoosh, dropped altitude very sharply. And Willem Vanderpass looked at Annette Herfkins and said, I really don't like this. And the plane dropped again and everything went black. Everything went dark. And, and this was a, there's a great article uh, in The Guardian written by Paula Kokoza uh, about this. And, and so Annette Herfkins woke up to the sounds of the jungle and she there was a there was a hole in the fuselage and she could see the light streaming through what had happened was that this little plane crashed into a mountain ridge and the body of another passenger was was laying across her he was dead and she looked over and saw her fiance willem he had also perished but somehow he died with a slight smile upon his face and and then she, she just kind of blacked out, sort of, and she has these weird memories. And she, uh, this sometimes happens, I think, when people go through really traumatic events. And she says that she can only remember this in pictures, like mental pictures. And maybe that's uh, what the author calls a, a sensory edit, that her, her, her brain kind of 
got rid of the most traumatic stuff about this and she she's only remembering a few a few things but uh, she also really tries hard to forget the smells involved with with all of this and, and that's the way it works with memory sometimes something that you see something that you hear maybe it's a song that was playing at a certain time in your life when something really important happened or the smell of some sort of food or whatever that can trigger a memory and so she's tried really hard to forget those things so this happened in november of 1992 to Annette Herfkins, the sole survivor of this plane crash. And so she had to get out of this plane, out of the fuselage, and she had 12 broken bones in her hip, her leg, her knee. Her jaw was dislocated, was hanging loose. She had a collapsed lung. And see, she somehow crawled out of the plane and got down to the jungle floor. And then she crawled another 30 yards or so away from the plane's wreckage. And so there were some other people who were still alive for a little while who somehow survived, and she could hear them kind of moaning and, and crying out in pain, but, but eventually those voices grew silent. And there was one other guy who crawled out of the plane as well, and he was very close by to where, where she was kind of laying on the, on the jungle floor, but eventually even he died. And so... The, the, the most vivid, vivid image that Annette says she remembers from, from the next eight days that happened was just this image of being surrounded by leaves, green leaves, golden leaves. She could see the dew, the sunlight reflecting off the, the dew on the leaves. And so she started just kind of looking at these leaves and, and focused on the light, the colors, the way they were swaying in the breeze, it, just anything to focus her away from what was going on in that fuselage or the plane that was that was very close by. And, and the, the, the guy, and I don't, I don't want to gross you out here, so plug your ears here because this is kind of gross. What She says that she could see the guy, the other guy who kind of crawled out of the plane, he was now dead, and she saw a worm crawling out of, a white worm crawling out of his eyeball. That, that oof, that's, no wonder you can't forget that image. And leeches were even crawling on her own skin. So how, how did she survive this? You're listening to the K.O. Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. Annette Herfkins, this bond trader, how did she survive this plane crash in the Vietnamese jungle? Well, she, she said this, if you accept what's not there, then you can see what is there. If you accept what's not there, you can see what is there. And she actually wrote a book about this. And uh, the book about her experience is called Turbulence, A True Story of Survival. And she was, not only wrote a book about it, but she's pitching this as a sort of a screenplay for a movie, uh, for a potential TV series. And she had actually some interest from Hollywood. A famous actor, and that famous actor was not named in the piece, but a famous actor apparently wanted to, to make this film, to get it done. But then COVID hit, and then all bets were off. But this, this whole concept of if you, if you accept what's not there, then you can see what is there. So she said once she accepted that her fiancé was dead and with him all of their hopes and dreams for the future, they weren't going to make it to that beach resort, they weren't going to get married, they, they weren't going to have a life together. Once she accepted that, she was able to see what was there. And what was there was this beautiful jungle. It's hard to believe how she could see it 
as such. How could it be beautiful? I mean, this is this is an incredibly tragic situation and place for her. But in a weird way, she she goes back to that, these leaves, this image of, of being in this jungle. Whenever she needs peace in her life, whenever she is under stress, whenever she's in emotional upheaval, she goes back to this jungle in her mind. It's kind of the safe place in her memory. And how is that even possible? How could that be a sort of, as the article says, how can that be a safe haven for her, given everything that happened there? Well, she had to transform the way she was looking at the situation. And she was kind of laying there. She couldn't, couldn't really move very well. All these broken bones. She was thirsty. And she thought about the bond markets, of all things. And she'd been working in Madrid, and she was the only woman working on the trading floor at the time. She thought of her mother back home in the Netherlands. And she was like, all right, I, I don't know. I don't know if the rescue party's coming, but I have to believe that they are going to come. I have to believe that they're going to find me. She did not think, even for one second, that she was going to die. She says she stayed in the moment. She stayed in the moment, and she trusted that somehow the search party was going to find her. So more, more on this later about staying in the moment. She says, I trusted that they were going to find me. I didn't think. What if a tiger comes? I mean, I'm in the jungle. A tiger might show up and eat me. Well, I'll deal with it when the tiger shows up. She didn't think, what if I'm going to die? She thought, well, I'll deal with that when it's time to die. And so she just tried to live in the moment, in the present moment. And she just experienced it as, quote, moment after moment after moment, end of quote. And as the writer of this, uh, of this article, uh, Paula Kotsa says, this is kind of mindfulness before the time of mindfulness. Everybody wants to talk these days about it being mindful. You know, mindfulness is kind of this buzzword in society. But she was doing it, you know, back in 1992, after this plane crash, just trying to live in the present moment. And when that guy, you know, the guy with the worm crawling out of his eyeball, when he, when he died next to her in the jungle, that's when she realized, I am all by myself. I am, the, I am now the sole survivor. I'm the lone survivor to borrow a line from a Mark Wahlberg movie, and, and then there's nobody, there's nobody else who's, who's survived this except for me, and so I am all alone. That's when she started to panic for the first time, and her, she had that one collapsed lung. She was, she started to, you know, her breathing got really shallow. She's panicking, and then she had to slow down. She had to slow down her breathing and just kind of whoosh, pump the brakes a little bit. And she said that by breathing, intentionally focusing on her breath, she got back into the moment back into the now. And in the, in the past on, on the Kale Clark Show, we talked about how people can use breathing. There was an episode that we did a while back when we talked about box breathing. And this is, this is a technique that Navy SEALs will use to calm themselves down and to, to kind of just get the heart rate down a little bit when they're in stressful situations. They need to think clearly. It's called box breathing. That's where you kind of take in a breath and you hold it for four seconds. I think it was either four or five seconds. I can't remember exactly what, but you, you take in a breath, you hold it for five seconds, and then you slowly exhale for five seconds. And then you just kind of do nothing for five more seconds. Then you inhale again. And so you kind of do this and it, it's like a box. You do, you do it four times. That's your box. You just keep doing these boxes over and over again. And so that's what she did to try to calm her nerves and try to not panic. And it, this article speaks nothing of her spirituality. I don't know whether she is a religious person or not, but she now works 
Annette Herfkins as an inspirational speaker. And she talks about her experience. She obviously wrote this book about it. And she often thinks about why is it that she was the only one who made it? I mean, the others obviously succumbed to their injuries. That's, that's part of the deal. But she wondered whether she had these qualities inside that somehow, that somehow equipped her for the task. And she, she, she was the youngest child in her family, but she didn't, her parents left her alone a lot. And I don't know if that was a, a good thing necessarily, but she said that that enabled her to develop instincts. She actually has ADD. She has attention deficit disorder. And she said if she was growing up now, if she was a kid now with ADD, she probably would have been prescribed Ritalin. I don't know if that's still in vogue for treating ADD, but she probably would have been diagnosed with it. She would have been, had Ritalin. But the way that she did grow up, she, she was kind of forgetful. She would routinely misplace her field hockey stick. But it also helped her to be inventive and charming. And she doesn't think that she would ever have developed those qualities if she had been you know, on these drugs. And her son, she has a son now who, whose name is Max. He's 23 years old, and he is actually autistic. More on this later. But both of them actually were on Ritalin uh, later on in life, but uh, they, they went off it because they didn't like it. They didn't like how it made them feel, and it, they said it inhibited their sense of humor, whatever. So she eventually got rescued, obviously. She was treated in a, in a hospital for a long time. And then she eventually went back to work. She eventually got married. She married one of her colleagues, uh, a guy named Jaime Lupa, moved to New York City and had these two children. She had, she had a daughter and then a son named Max who, who turned out to have autism and developed that. And so she would, she would go to all these parties and get-togethers with her, with her new husband. And of course, everybody wants to ask her Everybody wanted to ask Annette Herfkins about what's it like to be the sole survivor of a plane crash. And so people would quiz her about this, and I'm sure she got tired of this, but a lot of the dads would give her, hey, here's a book on survival. You know, here's how to survive in whatever situation. And she actually said, oh, okay. She took them home and read them. And she was like, man, believe it or not, she actually, the stuff that she was doing by instinct to survive in the jungle was actually exactly what you're supposed to do. According to the textbook, she said she did all the right things. For example, she knew, number one, having the presence of mind, she said, I need water. If I'm going to survive this ordeal in the jungle, I'm going to need water and I need to make a plan. So she, she was kind of laying on the floor of the, of the jungle and she could see the wing of the plane, which was broken off. She said, man, there's some insulation in there. If I could somehow crawl over and get it, I, I can use this. So she got on her elbows, obviously the broken hip, broken knee. And she's, she was kind of dragging herself along her elbows. And, and they, were, they were skinned so badly that when she was rescued, she had to get skin grafts to heal them. She finally reached the wing, pulls out all this insulation. And she was in such pain, she actually passed out. And when she woke up again, she, she kind of took this insulation and she made eight little balls of insulation. You say, well, how's that going to help? She just waited till it rained. And then the insulation soaked up all the rainwater and then she would have water when she needed so she would just kind of soak you know just squeeze out a few drops from the from these insulation balls that she made a few drops of water and she would just take a sip every two hours then take another sip another two hours take a sip and she still does this today by the way when she drinks water and every time she had a sip of water she congratulated herself hey, way to go well done you made it through another two hours and so she said just little things like that helped her to 
survive. All right. So which so later on down the road, she's she's writing a book about this, and she's trying to pitch it to Hollywood. You know, just before the pandemic hits, and she wanted to to talk about in the screenplay. She wanted it to be about the people that helped her, the other victims, about her autistic son, and and all the people in her life. And so Hollywood basically said, no, no, that's not a good story. Why not? And the Hollywood executive said, well, it has to be about you. It has to be all about you. And she said, that, but it's not all about me. It's not all about me. In fact, the only reason she says that she survived is because it wasn't about me. I got over myself. She said, quote, you get over your little self, then you get your instinct to work. Then you get to connect with other people, and then you can achieve stuff. End of quote. And that's textbook. That's a textbook team-oriented mindset. I like that. So it's, you can't do this alone. You can't, you can't survive alone. And so her son, uh, uh, Max, was diagnosed with autism when he was two years old. And she said it was really, really helpful to try to apply the lessons she learned in the jungle to her new life in New York City, you know, back in her job. And she has a son who has autism. Now she's living in a different kind of jungle. She's living in the concrete jungle of Manhattan. <laughs> and, and she felt like, you know what, this diagnosis seemed like really, really bad news. That she, heard, she read all these horror stories and she Googled a bunch of stuff about autism and and people said, man, you'll never be able to connect to your child. And she's like, man, this, is, this, this sounds like really, really bad news. And so she says, I went through this mourning process because she says her son was really typical when he was born. He was typical till he was 18 months old. And then she says she started losing him. He, he could start off by saying words. He was, he was very sweet. And then she said, and then he was gone. Then he was gone. As he developed autism, he unlearned how to talk. He, he knew how to talk and then he kind of unlearned it. And he kind of started to slip away. And she said a very different child began to emerge from the one that she knew. And so here, here's another line that she says. You have to mourn what's not there, but focus on what is there. Just like she said earlier, if you accept what's not there, then you see what actually is there. Well, sometimes you have to mourn what's not there. You have to mourn what's not there. And that's what she did. She was able. She kind of mourned that her son was never going to be the same way that he was before. And so she started connecting with other parents of kids who had autism. And she was like, you know, you'd kind of go for a jog in Central Park and you'd see these groups, you'd see these parents and kids with disabilities and you see them and, and you don't think too much about them. But then she's like, N now I'm in this group. Now this is my community. And, and you know, how, how life changes in that way. And so... It really intriguing uh, piece. We'll put a link to this in the in the show notes as well. But a really interesting piece in in the uh, in the Guardian about this lone survivor of a plane crash in 1992, Annette Herfkins. So she was 31 years old when the plane crashed, and within three months she was back working in her office in Madrid, in Spain. And but she's a lot of habits die hard from what she went through in in, in the jungle. She always carries a water bottle with her wherever she goes. And she finds the taste of water better than anything else. Not hard to imagine why. I mean, just trying to survive, just those few drops of water she was able to get uh, every two hours, that was literally the elixir of life. And so, but you know, she has all these recalls and little flashbacks. If she's out with a friend 
and the friend suggests, hey, do you want, do you want to go for Vietnamese food? No, no, thanks. <laughs> uh, something bad happened to me uh, in Vietnam, and I, I, don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to go there. That kind of brings it all rushing back. Um, when she flies on a plane, she has been able to get back on a plane and overcome that fear, but she only sits in the front row. She only sit, She can't look at a seat back because that would remind her of being in that fuselage, being in the wreckage, and that, and that, that body of that passenger uh, you know, that dead pastor that just wound up on top of her. And so how did she, how did she overcome this and, and move on? I, there's some great spiritual lessons from this, which I'm going to share with you. This is how we can apply it to our life. You're listening to the Kale Clark show on relevant radio, triple eight, nine, one, four, nine, one, four, nine. If you have a take on this, give me a call. Triple eight, nine, one, four, nine, one, four, nine. We will be right back after this break. faith and how you can live it and share it too it's kale clark on relevant radio that's right you definitely want to go to charitymobile.com get your free phone mention relevant radio and speaking of phones you can use that free phone to call me right now 888-914-9149 it's our toll-free listener line 888-914-9149 i told you the story before the break of the lone survivor of a plane crash that took took the life of her Fiance, her name is Annette Herfkins, along with about thirty or so other people. Uh, plane crashed uh, in, in a mountain in Vietnam. Uh, she lay on the on the floor of the jungle and and was rescued after eight days. She managed to survive and did not give up. Let's go to the phones right now. Brian is in Pawtucket in Rhode Island. Hi, Brian. Hi, it's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you. Hi. Oh, well, thank you. The, the honor's all mine. Let me ask you this. So the, does Pawtucket still have a minor league baseball team called the Pawtucket Red Sox? I don't think we do anymore. Uh, okay. It's the Worcester be... Red Sox, I think it is. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, that's not what you called to talk about. So what's your, what's your question, Brian? Um, honestly, I'm kind of just curious how this survivor is doing and, like, how you guys pick this story up. Because, like, hearing it just off that, it's like you don't hear many experiences of the Vietnam War. So it's just yeah, well, yeah. This this actually wasn't the Vietnam War, Brian. This is actually it did it, it happened in Vietnam. Um, it was it was a businesswoman who took a flight in 1992. I think she was working um, out of the country, and this was kind of a vacation that she had planned with her fiance. And unfortunately, the the plane crashed, and and I, I'm not sure what brought them to Vietnam for this event prior to it to it happening but it happened in 1992 so uh, 30 years ago over 30 years ago it happened in november of 1992 and she she is she is still alive and well and she was just profiled uh in the guardian uh uk and we'll put a link to this like i said brian in the show notes uh, earlier in the program i mentioned that so i'll send this to producer jim and uh, you can check it when you go to download the podcast share it with a friend on relevantradio.com relevant radio app and thank you thank you so much for your call brian really appreciate that let's go now to olga in marietta california hi olga hello hi hi you're on the air welcome to the program uh, um yes, i was just listening to your story and it kind of re- reminded me of my experience and i was 16 
I was in like a, in a swimming accident and many people died. And, oh, um, no. and so I survived and, uh, ever since and just kind of like it did galvanize my, um, you know, my purpose on life, like making sure I did, I put, you know, I made, um, uh, you know, that I made, made a difference in my life, you know, cause I got that second chance. Yeah. So was it something that happened at like sort of on the beach, like a, like a, the tide or something? What was the swimming it was, accident? It was actually, it was actually in Mexico. There were no lifeguards, no warning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, all of a sudden I was, I, I had my back to the, to the beach and all of a sudden I looked back and I felt like I was like a mile away from the beach. It seemed oh like my that. Goodness. And so, um, and I actually, one person actually did pass me to say somebody else. So they figured, oh, She's doing okay, but, um, but, um, but I just, you know, I just kept on swimming until somebody finally like helped me out and, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Thank God. And and yeah, like you said, it really, you really felt like you were given a second chance, a a new lease on life and hopefully that put things into, into perspective for you. And I'm sure it did, Olga. Yeah, it, it did. It did. Um, I just, I, one of the things I always comment about, that I always comment is that, um, uh, what was so strange is that I had like a, I felt a really, an incredibly, incredible sense of peace. I don't mm. know, it could have been just a thought, you know, but, um, mm. uh, so, but I, I survived, you know, and oh. I'm just grateful that yeah. I got a second chance. Yeah, thank thank God, thank God. Yeah, that is a scary situation for sure. And I almost drowned a few years ago myself. I, I'm I can't swim basically. I'm I can barely float. <laughs> and uh, I was visiting some friends uh, with my wife. We were out on Long Island, and we went to the beach, and and I got kind of sucked into the tide, and and I I I I almost got swept out to to sea. It was it was really bad. And, and so thankfully, thank God, I was able to reach out and grab a rock or something on the. And, and that kind of steadied me, and I was able to get back to the shore. But it was it was touch and go. It was touch and go. It was, it was not a good feeling. I was, and it, whew, anyways, but th- thanks, Olga, for calling, and God bless you. And, and we all have that second chance. Hey, we're breathing. We're still alive. We've, we've got a new start, even this moment. The power of the present moment. I think this is this is a big reason why Annette Herfkins was able to survive. And uh, just, just one last little thing um, uh, from this that, that kind of helped her she said was the fact that she was a trader, like she traded bonds. She worked in the bond market and she, she really, for those of you guys who know the business world, she was into all this like debt, like how do you cancel debt? How do you, how do you deal with these transactions? And she said, you got to understand how to take a loss properly, you know, when you're trading. And she said, look, here's the deal. Let's say you buy a stock or a bond and let's say it's worth 10 bucks and then the value drops to six. Okay. Well, if you don't sell it, it's just a loss on paper, but if you do sell it, well, you kind of feel it because you've just lost four bucks and, and sometimes stocks keep dropping and dropping and dropping and they go down to nothing. And and there's been a few notable stocks over the past few years that have, that have done that. And some people just don't want to cut their losses at any time. And some people sell too early. You know, I don't want to get into the psychology of, of, uh, of investing right now. But, but she says this, look, what people forget is, let's say your stock drops from 10 bucks to 6 bucks. If you sell it at 6 bucks, you then, yeah, you've lost 4 bucks. But you can take that 6 bucks and invest it in something else that hopefully will grow to more than the $10. And you'll have more than 
what you started with. And most people don't, don't think like that. She said it takes an effort to actually accept the loss. It's a lot easier to pretend that it never happened. You just kind of close your eyes to it and sing Kumbaya and pretend that it never happened. And so she's used this to deal with loss in her life. Not only the, the loss of her fiancé, who, whom she still mourns, but she went on to get married, and uh, tragically she got divorced, but then her ex-husband died on the exact same day, on the anniversary day of her fiancé's death in 1992 in the plane crash. So she, she had to mourn that as well. And so she's still dealing with, um, she's still taking care of, she's still a caregiver to her autistic son, Max. And she, she mourns her fiancé, Willem, every single day day and, and she says you, you've got to learn from the losses that you take in life it's painful but you've got to do it you've simply got to do it and so that that's that's certainly wise words and i would venture a guess that most of you listening out there we learn a lot more from the losses that we take in life than we do from the victories it's the same way if you played sports growing up you, you often l learn more from not the great victories but from the most humiliating defeats and uh, hey, as a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, I've, I've had my share of the latter. Things are looking up, though. We'll talk about that later. But at any rate, um, a really interesting piece um, in The Guardian about uh, Annette Herfkins and how she survived a plane crash, the sole survivor 30 years ago. But this idea of being in the present moment, and that's something that really helped her, just taking the next breath, not worrying about, what's, is a tiger going to eat me? You know, Am I going to die? Uh, don't worry about that. Just, just just get through the next moment and then the next moment and the next moment string them all together there's a great spiritual lesson in this i don't know if you've ever read the screw tape letters by c.s lewis but it's a phenomenal book it's it's a phenomenal book and if you don't know what what it's about the premise is simply that it's it's a series of letters of correspondence between uh, a senior demon <laughs> and, a, and a junior devil known as wormwood who happens to be his nephew so Wormwood is kind of a rookie. He doesn't quite know how to bring about people's damnation. So uh, his uncle is there to help. And so he kind of trains him. It's, it's kind of the opposite of having a guardian angel. And so the screw tape letters is all about how the enemy tries to tempt us. What, what is their playbook? How do they get us to fall for evil? And so this, this junior demon, Wormwood, is, his job is to try to make one young person make terrible choices, tempt that person into making terrible choices that they're damned for all eternity. And so his uncle, Uncle Screwtape, uh, gives him all kinds of tips. Why don't you try this? You could try that. And God, throughout the entire book, God is called the enemy. The enemy. He's our enemy. And so it's the, the exact flip side of how we think. We call the devil, of course, the great enemy. The Satan. And so here's a, here's a little excerpt from the screw tape letters it says quote and this is this is a screw tape writing to uh, his his nephew wormwood the humans live in time but our enemy and of course that's a reference to god our enemy destines them to eternity he therefore i believe wants them to attend chiefly to two things he wants them to attend to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call which the humans call the present for the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment, humans have an experience that's analogous to the experience 
that our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered to them. He would therefore have them continually be concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, meditating upon their eternal eternal union with him, or separation from himself. Or else, he might want them to obey the present voice of their conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present graces, giving thanks for the present pleasure. But our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present moment. So that's a, that's a great quote, and I could go on. And that's from uh, the Screw Tape Letters. Incredible reading. I, I'm told that when C.S. Lewis finished writing the screw tape letters. He had to take a break. I mean, he was just, he was exhausted from trying to, trying to like put himself theoretically into the mind of a demon who might be trying to tempt a person away from God. And so th- this is, this is a great, great insight, a great, great insight. And we, we often get caught living in two places that really don't help us very much, the past or the future. Now, of course, the past, and we can learn from the past. We, we, as long as we learn the lessons, we can even grow from our mistakes and our failures. There's no question about that. It can cause us to rely more on God, to trust in Him more, to hope in Him more, to love Him more, to thank Him for His forgiveness. But sometimes when we dwell in the past, it's not a good thing. There's a lot of regret there, and we, we need to move on. And so the future, whew, dealing with the future, that is sometimes even worse. And, and Screwtape talks about this uh, in the book. We, we deal a lot in the what-ifs. And by the way, I'm guilty as charged. I'm raising my hand. You can't see me here because we're on radio. But the what-ifs, I am the master of this. What if this happens? What if that happens? And th- the demons say this in the screw tape letters. We've got to get this person into A, either living in the past, or B, living in the future. Especially we want people trying to live in the future because we can prey on their fear of the unknown. They lose their peace over things that aren't even real. They haven't happened yet. They think they might happen, but they might never happen. So these things are not realized yet, and they maybe never will be. So here, here's the, the thing, because when people's minds are not on the present moment, they're not on God. They're not thinking about God. They're not thinking about the present moment. And, and this is the thing, that the demons know that the present moment is the moment that's most like eternity. Because in eternity, it's just this eternal present. God is, God is there. God is always present. Now, how does he uh, introduce himself to Moses in, in the book of Exodus? And we did the Exodus series on, on the Faith Explained recently, the account of the burning bush. I am. Not I was. Not, no, I'm going to be some. I am. I am. And Jesus, of course, takes that a divine name upon his lips, you know, fear not, I am. When you say, coming to them walking on the water, I am. Whew, okay, so it's the present moment. It's the present moment. And so, when we're not living in the present moment, we're not focused on God. We're, we're thinking about either the past or the future sometime. And by the way, it's, it's, it's not a sin to have foresight, and that's something that we do have to have. We have to have foresight. We have, we've been gifted with, with a mind that can 
kind of game out the future a little bit. And, and, and that having foresight and planning for eventualities is, is not the same as dwelling in the future in, in a bad way. Okay, we do have to plan, but, but hold our plans very loosely because God might have other plans. But that's a lot different. Having foresight, planning for the future is a lot different than being worried and committing the sin of worry about the, the worst possible scenario and what-ifs that might take place. Because God not only does not want us to worry, he wants us to have peace and joy. Now think, about, think about John chapter 16. What did Jesus say? He's, he's telling the apostles, I'm going to go to the cross, all these terrible things are going to happen, and you're going to be tempted to worry, to stress. He says, I'm going to see you again. And when you see me, he's talking about the resurrection, of course. When you see me, no one will be able to take away your joy. And, and you'll be able to face whatever the future holds with joy and with peace. Even if you're persecuted, even if you wind up being martyred for the faith, as they all were, except for the Apostle John himself. He got persecuted quite a bit himself. He, didn't, he wasn't completely off the hook here. But they were able to face that with joy and peace. Uh, you know, they're getting beaten and, and, and taken to task and whipped for preaching in the name of Christ. And they rejoiced in the Acts of the Apostles. They rejoiced, it says, that they were able to suffer for the sake of the name, for the sake of the name of Jesus. And think about think about St. Thomas More. I mentioned him uh, recently. When he was being martyred, he's got all this gallows humor. I mean, he's telling jokes as he's going up the, the scaffold, and he's going to be, they're going to lop off his head. And he says to the executioner, and the guy was shaking like a leaf because Thomas More was like the number two guy in all of England. He was the, the Lord Chancellor. He was so famous and so well-known and well-respected. And now because Henry VIII wants to do his thing, Thomas More has to die. And this guy knows probably that, that this is unjust, that this is not right. But he's got to do his job as the, as the state executioner. And Thomas More says to him, hey, just make sure it's a clean cut because I don't want you to lose your professional reputation. Oh, and by the way, I've been working really hard on this beard. So, you know, just can you just not cut the beard hairs? Like, because I kind of like the way it looks right now. I mean, who says stuff like that? Except a guy that knows where he stands with God in the present moment. He's got a clear conscience. And he's ready to face eternity. Because in a way, he's, he's, he's in a state of grace. Eternity is, is, is in you right now. And, and that's, that's incredible. So that, that's the kind of peace that we're looking for. That's the uh, kind of joy that we are looking for in life. And so I, I think that's a real good takeaway that we can get uh, from this lone survivor story about living in the present moment with joy, with peace, not thinking about the future. Okay, having foresight, but not, not dwelling on it, not worrying about it for sure. Living the present moment with God. That's, that's the key. Because it's only in the present. That's the only thing we can offer God when we say yes to God in this moment. We can offer him this gift. And that's why they call it the present. All right, all right, that was a cheesy joke. But we got to take a little break right now on the Kale Clark Show. If you want to react to this, give me a call. 888-914-9149. And we will be right back. Marcel? Where are you going with that disc? You are not putting that on again. Marcel, okay, if you press that button, you are in very, very big trouble. Faith, facts, and fun. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. What I want, you got to my heart. 
Ah, yes. The dulcet tones of Hall and & Oates. And, and yeah, that is the song that they play whenever the Maple Leafs score a goal. I, I don't know why they picked this song, but we're all getting used to it. It's it's kind of made that connection in our synapses, in our brains. Ooh. You make my dreams come true. Well, my dreams came true in, in a way. I mean, I have small dreams, but uh, my Toronto Maple Leafs, for the first time in 19 years, made it through to the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And ooh, we'll talk about that more in just a second, but I just want to give out the phone number because a lot of you guys are still reacting to the, the story of the lone survivor uh, who survived a plane crash in 1992 in the jungles of Vietnam, Annette Herfkins, and how she survived it. And what the spiritual lessons are from that, we talked about living in the present moment. 888 if you want to call in. We'll get your phone calls in just a second. But I, I wanted to talk about this last night, but we, we, were, we were on a roll again with phone calls, so I, I just kind of kind of went with it. But but I had, to, I had to remind everybody that NHL legend John Scott was on the program recently for a playoff preview, and, and, and he proved a profit, at least in this case. Here's what Johnny said. I was heartened to hear you say just a moment ago, you think that the Leafs might be able to get, get over on the Lightning right now. Well, f- to give a backstory, Toronto has lost six consecutive years in the first round. And they've always finished yeah. in the regular season, usually in the top five or six. So they're a very good team. But the way the hockey playoffs work is you stay in your division first and they have yeah. to play the Tampa Bay Lightning every year or the Bruins in the first round. And they, do, yeah. they never beat those teams. But this year is the year. I think oh, they right. got Ryan O'Reilly. He's the difference maker. I think Tampa Bay's coming in a little limping. They're, they got some injuries. They haven't been playing well of late. And this is the year. Uh, I'm picking Toronto. I think they're going to slay the dragon. They're going to get past the first round. It's going to be a huge deal. Then they're going to get just waxed in the second <laughs> round. But yes, well, it'll I, be he, good for them to get out of the <laughs> first round. John Scott. That was John Scott. And Jimmy, you can tell me when that, that other piece is ready to go. And John Scott certainly proved a profit at least in this case, and maybe he's becoming a B-leafer. A real, get it? Okay, the Leafs, sorry. Well, he, John did predict the New York Rangers were going to get to the finals. Uh, that didn't happen. The New Jersey Devils beat them in Game 7. Uh, having said that, uh, I'm really excited because the second round starts tonight, and, and it looks e- like maybe clear sailing for the Toronto Maple Leafs because, guess what? The mighty Boston Bruins, the team that had the best record of all time in the regular season, won the President's Trophy, most wins of all time, most points of all time. They fell in seven games, huge upset to the Florida Panthers. And so now it seems like, I don't know, not that the Panthers are going to be an easy mark by any stretch of the imagination, but the Leafs will play Florida starting tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. And here's the winning goal in overtime from the last series by, by another John, John Tavares, Maple Leafs captain. Tavares leaves it for Marner. Oh, excuse me, kept it, and he's still on it. Forced it deep for Nyes. Nyes and Sergachev. Now for Tavares behind the net. Gets out in front, turns and shoots and scores! Tavares is the one! Incredible. What joy. And uh, so many of you reached out to me to, to express your, your congratulations to me. Not that I had anything to do with this. Uh, other than being a long-suffering Leafs fan, uh, with the Leafs uh, making it through to the second round. And Steve Weidenkopf, good friend of the program, great professor at Christendom College, and he's written a lot about church history, a lot of fantastic books. Uh, also a big hockey fan, big New York Islanders fan. And that's a team that John Tavares used to play for, and five years ago he came back to his hometown Maple Leafs, and people on Long Island are still upset about this. Uh, but Steve Weidenkopf said to me, he tweeted at me, and he said, hey man, don't forget, 
the Islanders uh, didn't didn't win a playoff round for 23 years. You think you had a drought? 23 years. And guess who scored when they finally made it through? Guess who scored the overtime winner to put him in the second round? It was John Tavares. And now it's come full circle. The common denominator, Johnny T, the captain. All right, how about that? Leafs are off the schneid. By the way, I, I have to say it's super cheesy of the Florida Panthers. Uh, you probably heard about this. This was in the news. They have restricted ticket sales for the series against the Leafs for the games in Florida to only U.S. residents can buy tickets. They don't want all the Leaf fans. They're, they're one of these teams that, that fans that just travel really, really well. And when they're on the road, maybe half the crowd is Leaf fans in a lot of arenas, and they, they do not want that to happen. I think that is so lame. It's basically an admission that we have terrible fans, and it's, it also doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's not very smart, because guess what? Canadians can still get tickets through the secondary market. They're still coming. And we need to get rid of the anti-Canadian xenophobia. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And uh, anyways, but I'm, I'm excited about the next round. It's going to be a lot of fun, <laughs> a lot of joy. And speaking of joy, in our series on the Faith Explained, we just started it today. Uh, episode two is tomorrow, the joy of knowing Jesus. That's the real joy. That's the real holy grail. Forget about the Stanley Cup. It, it is knowing Christ. The chalice filled with his blood, that's the real That's the real holy grail. You know that, the Eucharist. And so St. Paul writes about this in his letter to the Philippians. Check it out, 1230 Central, only on Relevant Radio. Let's go to the phones right now, 888-914-9149. Jody is in Las Vegas. The Vegas Knights are there. Hi, Jody. They sure are. Hi, Kale. I love your show. Thank oh. you for everything you do. Love your knowledge, your humor, your your you know your play on words. And, uh, of oh, course, thanks. even how you cleverly sl- slip in sports into the fold <laughs> wherever you can and tie in faith. I see that. Um, well, I, I can't help myself, Jody. We always get great calls from Vegas. i got to say that we always get uh, – Vegas is a great market for us, and, and everybody who calls from Vegas always has a great take. And what, 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 are, you, what are you thinking uh-huh. right now, Jody? What's, what's up? Well, what I was actually thinking is I wanted to thank you very much for bringing up the screw tape letters. And I loved your parallel with the lone survivor. And it's a big, to me, I I see that parallel that you were conveying and that the enemy does try so hard to persuade us that it's Mm. all about us. And I I think, you know, I'm not saying that Hollywood is the enemy. However, I also see that parallel between Hollywood trying to convey to Net, uh, what was it, Herkins? Herfton's mm-hmm. that yep. uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't about the people she was trying to live for or mm-hmm. trying that she was think, thinking of that helped her so well to survive because he is the enemy and does want us to not survive. And he does try, I think, and I think you've conveyed this before, how he tries to blockade us from the grace God is handing mm. us to be able to suffer well yeah. and, and to be able to champion through those tumultuous moments, but, but with the grace of having, you know, that peace and, um, you know, just like uh, Victor Frankel had, had, who I think you've also talked about before. Um, I think he has some similar quote where, where there's a why, you know, there's something along the lines of where there is a why there isn't really a how in the world that's going to ever really deter you. And then my last comment was the, the quote that I know you've mentioned before as well, is uh, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta saying that uh, a life not lived for others is not a life. Ooh, so. that's powerful. That is powerful. Yeah, Jody, that, that, what a great phone call. It's so true. And uh, Victor Frankel, if, you, if you've got a strong enough why, 
the how almost doesn't matter. Our purpose it has to be to 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 love God and and get to heaven. And and that's yeah. There's so much to think about there, isn't there? And I, I really appreciate you calling in. Great, great phone call, Jody. Call back any any time on the Kale Clark Show. And yeah, this this whole concept of, of the present moment, and, and she talked about that, and Annette Herfkins, you know, when she was in the jungle, not knowing whether she was going to survive another night or even another hour. Is a tiger going to eat me? Well, God will give you the grace to deal with the tiger when the tiger shows up. And, and sometimes we, we project ourselves out into the future, and we worry about situations that we're not in yet, and we might never be in, and God will give you the grace for the moment. That's that's the problem. And it's it's You can't stockpile it. And that's that's what I always say to people. You can't stockpile grace like the federal reserve you know you, you just can't do it you can't do it he, he he dispenses it as needed in the moment and so we have that's that's again a, another good reason to live in the present moment love it let's go to kathy in wisconsin hi kathy we got uh, just about a minute or so what what's your what's your take on this well I, hi kale thank you for taking my call um i just wanted to i just came into my mind that you know at that moment to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, the scripture mm. says. So when uh, he was going to be beheaded and joking, I think, you know, you know, when Jesus was dying, he was humble and he was trite and, you know, he was, you know, very somber and sad and happy. You know, he had to do it. He knew he had to do it. But in this case, when his head was going to be chopped off, you know, he was... He was making jokes and stuff like that because, you know, he he was he was in the you know he was present with the Lord at that second. Mm. Brace came down. <laughs> you know, Kathy, that, that's a great point. Just that kind of confidence. That's what I man. I hope I have that one day, and just to to keep working on that. And uh, you mentioned Jesus on the cross too. And and one thing that that when I was on retreat last week one one thought that that uh, the priest shared in one of the one of the meditations one of the talks really got to me when he when he said nobody ever talks about the joy of Jesus on the cross and that that needs to be talked about a lot more yeah it was painful absolutely but he also had this joy because he was accomplishing the redemption and that that's whew, that's interesting to think about as well so lots to be happy about lots to be joyful about in our faith. And it was a joyful hour with you guys. Always, always a pleasure. This is Kale Clark, Jim Shaper produced. Patrick Alock took your phone calls. Keep it locked on Relevant Radio. Timory's coming up next and the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy. <laughs>